So as I was walking towards him, I thought, I don't think he's going to be expecting this. Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. Becoming a dad can sometimes feel like you're adding another spinning plate to your collection when you're already at capacity. Sometimes you have to step away from something to focus on something else. Jimmy was working in a high intensity job when his wife became pregnant and it was time to make a difficult decision. So I was sitting in a waiting room outside uh, the main office and I knew that it was one of the biggest decisions that I was ever going to make and you're still not totally sure whether leaving is ever the right decision with these things. You're trying to weigh up lots of different things. You know, frankly, this was one of the biggest jobs that I was ever going to have. Um, but I was also trying to balance it off with, you know, a family coming that was, you know, our first baby daughter was going to be arriving, you know, later that month. And so it was a big decision. And I would always feel nervous before these meetings. Like it you know, it would always make the heartbeat a little bit faster going in there and you know, you would think about what you wanted to say. You know, every second, every word, everything that you were going to say, you did not want to miss a beat. You wanted to be as direct with the time that you had and as impactful. So you would always sort of prepare a little bit about, you know, well, what am I going to say? What am I going to open with? etc. So you would think very clearly about every word that you wanted to say. So I was just standing there thinking about that in my head. And I was wearing a blue tie with highlighters on, which my friends had actually sort of bought for me when I first got the initial job. Um, and so it was a tie that I'd always worn on kind of big, special, momentous uh, days. It dawned upon me, you know, this would be the last time that you go through this door. Um, and, you know, that I'd been through, you know, sort of sometimes four or five times a day for the last three years and was going through it for the, uh, for the final time um, to deliver the message. So as I was walking towards him, I thought, I don't think he's going to be expecting this. So he was behind his desk, just finished a phone call of some description, looked up and was just like, Jimmy, Jimmy, good to see you. What's going on? And it, it got lots of people wanting to go and, and work there. You know, not, not many that were sort of saying, actually, I want to leave. I was pretty forthright about it. You know, you, you've got to be assertive. And he sort of raised an eyebrow, looked at me, and I said, look, Prime Minister, the baby's coming in a couple of weeks. I don't think I've got any other option. I just feel that I, I'm in danger of being a crap dad and a crap spad to you. And frankly, it's time for me after three years to go and do something new. I need to resign. So Jimmy, what an interesting world that we went into because as a layman, I don't really know much about the political landscape aside from what I see on the TV or what I see on the news. But you really had a door into the world that most of us will never 
never see into. What was that like? Yeah, there, there is a bit of a danger that you get a bit blasé about working there and, and so on. And, you know, I remember Danny Finkelstein, who would be in there quite a lot, writing the Times, Lord Finkelstein now, was sort of saying, you know, don't forget that's the cabinet room that you're sort of standing next to, that you're kind of leaning against nonchalantly. Um, and it was quite good to have people like that around and saying things like that because it did sort of uh, remind you of the kind of like, you know, the, the history of the place, really, and, and the kind of like, you know, kind of like cockpit of the nation, really. You know, so many sort of big decisions have been taken there over the centuries. Um, and, yeah, you, you feel very privileged to, to work there. But you, I would often try and remind myself of what it was like the first time I walked through the door, the first time you walked down the, down the street so that you wouldn't get um, too blasé about it. This is very much an institution, and it's something that we you think about when we go back to being kids watching ITN or, or BBC News and you're seeing them, seeing the prime ministers, you know, waving as they then turn around to go, go through number 10. And as you were telling your story, I was, I created the scene for myself of what the prime minister's office looks like from the inside and so on. So yeah, it's, it's a world that we're not privy to generally. But I think there's something very British about sort of Downing Street and the way that it operates because it is effectively an, an old sort of townhouse, right? You know, it, it's not actually that sort of big. It doesn't really function properly to kind of run one of the world's biggest countries and biggest economies from, you know, um, essentially sort of lots of spare bedrooms. So it's kind of a bit of a bizarre place to work. And I remember, you know, when we would go and, you know, visit the Americans or Canadians and Germany as well. I mean, Angela Merkel's office is is sort of a, you know, it's kind of like the size of a couple of tennis courts, you know, whereas the Prime Minister's office is, is actually not that not that big. And, and the whole building itself, you know, there are no kind of palatial offices, you know. None of the staff really have their own offices either. So it's all kind of like, you know, it's, it's basically old servant quarters, a lot of the rooms there and you have kind of like four or five people in in each one of them um there's no floor plan for security reasons either and so you have to um you just essentially kind of have to learn by walking around the building about where people are based and and so on so it's quite um it's it's quite bizarre but it's quite quintessentially british i think in lots of ways does it reflect our understated and reserved nature as British citizens that there isn't these palatial offices for the the prime minister and it's just very sort of yeah understated it's not particularly grandiose by any means yeah I think that's probably true actually I think it does kind of reflect the sort of British nature of it I mean one of the big things that I would do in my kind of role as business and entrepreneurship advisor is that I would often sort of be one of the final people that a company would see before making kind of a you know, big investment in the UK, particularly when I arrived there in 2016, it was, you know, the country just voted for Brexit. There was quite a lot of, well, you know, what's you know, Britain's position going to be on, on this kind of thing? And it'd be my job to sort of see some of these big international investors and talk to them about, uh, you know, the kind of prime minister's plans uh, for the country and for, for business and what we were going to do. And I would always request the what sort of one particular um, room for these meetings, which was called the small dining room. Um, and it really was a very small dining room. You could only really fit that sort of eight people in there maximum. Um, and that was basically the meetings where Thatcher and Gorbachev used to meet. So um, Mikhail Gorbachev led the um, Soviet Union. And that 
a large part of the sort of Cold War was was stored in that room, really, in in some ways. And so, you know, particularly when we've got big American investors, you know, having them in that room would sort of, you know, really evoke sort of memories for them of the eighties and nineties. Um, so that was kind of like quite a quite a good way to sort of bring it across. But it was, you know, it is, you know, we are a very historical nation, uh, and having stuff like that is is quite important we do need to sort of play on that sort of development of our culture over centuries and centuries how did you deal with meeting all of these influential figures from around the world you mentioned gorbachev and people like that and you know those those kind of very private conversations that we never hear about so what was that like to be to be in that world and did it take some sort of getting used to when you from when you first became prime minister's advisor it did take some getting used to, but fundamentally, you're you're trying to build a connection with people, and you're trying to build it in as quick a way as possible. And it can be quite, you know, challenging because often you're seeing these people, and you're right that you're seeing sort of big people, but they're about to sort of see the prime minister. So they're often quite nervous. So you've sort of got to try and put them at ease um, as quickly as, as possible. You know, some people get more nervous about it than, than others. You, you're just trying to find that kind of instant connection with people. So I remember one meeting, for example, I share with you with Tim Cook of, of Apple, for example. So, yeah, big global leader, you know, runs, you know, if you put Apple as a kind of country's economy, you know, it'd be in the sort of top 20 in, in its own right. And he was in that sort of um, room that I just mentioned, like in the in the story beforehand. And we were there, sort of chatting away about things. And there was a picture of the Queen uh, there, and it's this wonderful, rare picture of the Queen smiling. Because often that's that's not the case. And he was just sort of saying that is that really is a magnificent um, picture. And we, he was just saying, oh, I've just been watching the Crown and so on. So we we talked him through that, and then I basically gave him a sort of quick. The prime minister was a bit delayed, so I went and gave him a quick tour, and we ended up being late for the meeting. But it was an irony, irony of it. But then we also like, you know, one of the things was, okay, well, what have we learned from that ten minutes that can kind of foster a relationship with this, uh, you know, mega uh, corporation? And we made sure that we got a copy of that picture of the Queen and, and sent it to him. And I'm pretty sure that hangs now in the new Battersea headquarters um, that Apple have it in the UK because it was a, yeah, that was. Again, an example of a meeting of where, you know, this was a, a big company that was, you know, was not necessarily concerned by Brexit, but it was just like, you know, this was an unexpected decision. Um, and, yeah, so that was that was why we were seeing it. I'm kind of imagining myself in that scenario. And, you know, you talk about people like Tim Cook and, and all of these incredibly successful people. And sometimes I find myself when I'm, I'm meeting certain people that I perceive to be higher status than me or they've achieved more than me. I find that sometimes this sort of imposter syndrome can come in, but then I just remind myself, this is just a human being. This is, if we're talking about men, this is just a, a man just like you and I, he's probably got his own challenges. Hey, he goes to the bathroom just like I do and he brushes his teeth just like I do, I'm sure, unless he's got some incredible technique for brushing his teeth that I don't know about. And I think that's always helps me to bring things back to reality, that they're not some sort of superhuman. Of course, there's a bit of sort of imposter syndrome that somebody's going to kind of like tap you on the shoulder and be like, how did, how did you get here? Um, 
know, this job's not for you. Um, yeah, definitely. And I think anyone that, that takes on a big job and doesn't have that at points, um, you know, it's, it's kind of strange if you don't have that really. Um, and so, yeah, when you're meeting these people, I mean, yeah, I suppose I was like more in awe of the kind of like, you know, the business leaders and, and so on of, of people that you were um, meeting. But yeah, you're, you're right, actually, that you know, felt quite quickly able to sort of adapt to them and so on. I mean, it was, it, it would be amazing when you had met people that had achieved in, incredible feats. I mean, I remember when we saw the, England cricket team after winning the 2019 World Cup. So they came in the day after for reception at, at number 10. And I mean, that was just the most extraordinary game of cricket that we'll probably ever see. Um, and yeah, they were all just kind of like, you know, normal men who were just having a good time, having achieved something great. And it was, you know, it was almost like, you know, at that stage, they hadn't probably really, like, for them, they hadn't sunk it in. It was literally 24 hours later, and they were all sort of, you know, there, and, and they're all kind of like, you know, they, I think they almost have a little bit of potential imposter syndrome, right? Or like, you know, it's like, I'm a very good cricketer. What am I doing in the Downing Street Garden? Like, what's all this sort of about? So you were just there to sort of like, you know, kind of try and put them at, put them at ease and, you know, just ask them questions about, things and so on and that was pretty uh, yeah that was a very sort of uh, special day well you're you're part of the fabric if you go into you go you're working from 10 down the street every single day you know the culture the atmosphere and and the, the people within it so i can imagine you'd be quite comfortable in that setting i want to know once you left those those doors those big black doors of number 10 you're walking down the street you're feeling this sense of freedom what actually did you do next? What were these huge job offers that inevitably you would have got after leaving the leaving 10 Downer Street as, a, as an advisor to the Prime Minister? It was a real challenge because I sort of, you know, it's not like it was a kind of unexpected, uh, you know, Theresa May leaving office, you know, it wasn't like when David Cameron did, like it was sort of like a bolt from the blue. Yeah, we've been on sort of rocky ground for kind of a, a, a while um and i was trying to work out kind of what i wanted to do next and i think yeah the sort of you, you get lots of offers but it's quite a lot of it was sort of lobbying offers and you know kind of come in and kind of lead our government relations team and so on which i was intrigued by but i just I'm, i was quite burnt out and i just wanted to do something completely different to kind of government and politics and I guess I met so many of these kind of entrepreneurs uh, and so on, and I kind of wanted to embed myself more in that world. You know, I needed a kind of complete um, break from it all, really, about kind of watching it all incessantly and so on. And it was great to have the baby as part of that. And I actually went off to go study at Stanford University for a couple of months as well, and sort of a new family out there, but we just had a kind of complete break to sort of do that, which was um, which was great, um, really. Oh, amazing. What what were you studying there? So I studied entrepreneurship. So they have this sort of two-month course that you can do, which is where you pitch a business idea and you then there are 70 of you on the course and you each do, you split into teams of six or seven and the most popular ideas you kind of work on um, to, and you basically apply the, the learnings that you do in class. You then go in the evening and try and sort of apply them to the sort of business that you're um, working on. So that was 
yeah, incredibly exciting and, and just very, which is very different, right? Yeah, I did. I did a module like that at university when I I did business management and economics at university, and we did something similar. And it's really good to just apply those principles into the real world business. It's just something immediate, yeah. And yeah, rather than just kind of having it theory based. And obviously, there, there are those teachers of business who've never actually ran a business, and then there's there's you know the practicing. Uh, business teachers who who know a lot because they've done a lot at the same time. So after you came back from Stanford, I think a lot of people are going to want to know what was your kind of foray back into the the employment world. My wife would agree to this kind of California adventure on the basis that we could go camping for the final kind of week. We could take an RV, and it was wonderful. We had a small RV, me, um, my wife, and and our baby daughter and we didn't have any wi-fi and it was great and i remember the sort of beginning of it there was this sort of like covid19 sort of thing on the on the horizon we did at the sort of at the kind of graduation ceremony of the stanford thing we didn't actually shake hands and, and so on and then we sort of got wi-fi again the day before we were due to fly back and it just there was such a kind of like step change in, in everything and you know i remember being kind of like gosh we even gonna be able to like the first notification that came up on my phone was, um, you know, Donald Trump has cancelled all flights back to the European Union. Um, so I remember thinking, well, at least we got Brexit achieved <laughs> six weeks ago, which is sort of was positive. Um, and we were on the last flight back to the, to the UK and the airport was completely dead and so on. It's very, very surreal kind of like coming back for all that and then you know, got home and, and actually, my wife is a doctor in the NHS and was like, yeah, look, I think I need to go back and I'm going to make the offer to go back and, and, and see what he's doing. Um, and, you know, it, you kind of forget now that it really was like a war effort at that time. Um, and they were like, yeah, can you come back next week? And so we got this sort of scenario where, you know, she went back and, you know, I, I sort of became stay-at-home dad to our uh, um, five-month-old daughter and, and you know, so it's kind of gone from sort of Downing Street to diapers, effectively, within the space of, of five months. And it was very much stay at home, of course, because we weren't allowed. Um, you know, we had a sort of one-hour government sanctioned walk around the park each day, but that that was it. That was a shock to me that you're in this position within Downing Street. Then you then you do this this course at Stanford University, and then probably the listeners as well. I'm thinking he's going to go into some sort of high-flying job and you're in your boxer shorts in the living room. You could never imagine. I think back to my granddad. I know your granddad was a coal miner as well. And the idea of my granddad, Tom, from Tilsley in, Man in Greater Manchester, staying at home looking after my my dad whilst whilst my grandmother w went to work, it just it's almost laughable um, because at the times that it was, you know, it was a completely different time. In terms of typical masculinity, it is that, that sort of like the ultimate sort of, you know, hunter-gatherer in cave, in the cave era, right? That That is sort of very masculine. You know, going down a coal mine sort of a kilometre underground to use your hands to sort of pull out coal is also about, you think about how far that sort of masculinity has moved in that 4,000 years from cave period to coal mining, like actually it's not sort of an enormous shift. What it's done in the last 30 years has kind of completely changed, right? And so there is this huge sort of like change of what kind of masculinity is. But it was interesting. We had a podcast recording 
go over the other day. And so my dad had to do an emergency kind of pickup uh, at nursery. And then I ended up coming really back late from it. And I was still thinking it's going to be a disaster with my two kids at home. It'll be you know chaos and whatever. And actually, do you know what? Both kids were changed, ready for bed. I'd had the teeth brushed and were kind of, they were still up, but like it was, it was fine. There was stuff that the brim, peanut butter sandwiches, but like actually the paternal instinct, sometimes I think is stronger than sometimes we, we give credit for. And uh, I think, you know, men can sort of sometimes, and understandably rightly sort of defer to the mothers and, and so on about about things but yeah we should sort of sometimes give ourselves more credit we often talk about maternity there's much on the kind of paternal side of things one thing that struck me about jimmy's story was just how humbling it must have been to have gone from sitting in the prime minister's office to sitting at home in his underpants watching daytime tv with a baby on his knee how must this have felt for jimmy from my viewpoint he actually seemed really comfortable with his new role as a man, redefine what it means to be a man in some ways. I wonder if I could have handled this transition with as much humility as Jimmy had. He obviously went from battling in this great arena of politics to battling nappy changing, going from meeting these great titans of business to basically being at home 24-7 with a five-month-old. Some might have seen this as a fall from grace, but he's since gone on to create a fantastic podcast called Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, which I myself listened to. It really seems like he did all of this on his own terms and was relieved to remove himself from the political cauldron of fire that he was experiencing on a daily basis. It reminded me of an episode we did with a guy called Bode Abaderin about staying at home as a father and the contrast between the 21st century shift of men being a lot more present in the parenting of children as opposed to the way that you know our grandfathers or even our own parents raised us. But it's got me thinking have we changed our prejudices towards a man's role in the home? For instance, I've got a mate who's actually unemployed right now, but his wife has a really lucrative job. And I was speaking to him the other day and someone said to me, how are they actually paying the bills? How are they getting by if he doesn't have a job? But I guarantee if it was his wife that wasn't working and he had the lucrative job, they wouldn't have asked that same question. How can we change and adapt our prejudices around men who trade high-flying jobs in return for being a more present father figure. Jimmy showed himself to be a man that's a non-conformist. But I want to ask, how about you? What type of man do you think you are? Take our man test to find out more about yourself by clicking the link in the description or by going to storiesofmenpodcast.com. It takes less than three minutes to complete and you never know, you might just learn something completely new about yourself.